story of Joseph. And there is so much uh, week by week that I sometimes have to pause and realize that it doesn't fit into the sermon to say this, so I can't. But there's so much wisdom in what's been given to us through this narrative of Joseph. Here he's presented before us and presented before you this morning as the man with the bread and the cup. He has it all now. Here is chapter 44. Joseph's brothers just had a very large dinner with him. And they drank and ate well in the middle of a famine, actually. And Joseph rushed them out of his house after meeting the youngest brother, Benjamin. He disorients them here. Very early in the morning, it says, Then he commanded the steward of his house, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest of those brothers. With his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, very early, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Then Joseph said to His steward, now up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? Referring to that cup that was planted in Benjamin's bag. You have done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke to them and said these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servant to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back from their first trip. To you from the land of Canaan, how then can we we steal silver or gold from our Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found, with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. And he said, let it be so as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. This each man quickly lowered the sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned back to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph, he was still there in his house. And they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out our guilt guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also whom had the cup has been found. And he said, 
Far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Then Judah went up from him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, a child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servant, Bring him down to me, that I may see with my eyes, see him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for he should, if he should leave his father, uh, his father would die. Then you said to your servant, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to our servant, your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother does not go with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, referring to Joseph. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge, a surety, a guarantee, a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as your servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And Joseph, finally, the climax of it all is here. He could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him then. And Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the house of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. For they were dismayed in his presence. There it is. As far as we have the story of Joseph unfolded. The mystery is revealed. Joseph has finally revealed himself to his brothers. 
what we find when we look at Joseph's interaction with his brothers is it presses upon our minds a very real need for mercy and grace. Because if you have been living in this world and you have been living with people, which most people live in this world with people, some people go to Alaska, but you learn that you need to know how to live with people with love, mercy, and grace. And because it's true what we say in the doctrine of total depravity is that people are very evil. If we were to say this was Lord of the Rings, we're not living in the realm with the elves. We're living with the orcs. So we end up biting each other and hurting each other. That's not the realm we live. So we have to learn to forgive, be gracious to one another. But it all becomes much more important when we consider it's not just one another that we have problems with. It actually is God. Uh, We've seen how Joseph is an image of the judgment seat of God. Uh, Throughout the text, it's pretty clear. It's actually said, not as a a way I would try to allegorize or uh, symbolize the text, but that's actually what the text is saying of itself, which we'll see. If you remember or consider the fact that it is this judgment seat of the man. The man with no name. The man who looks like an Egyptian and has tremendous power. That is the man who terrifies his brothers. They are afraid of him. When they found out the first time that they had all that money in their sacks when they went back home, we're told that their heart went out from there. Them, Their power or their ability or will to live was shaken because they were so afraid of what this man could do to them. It's a petrifying thing to know the man, the judgment, the throne without mercy without grace, without a name, without a relation. To say all this, we have to know, and the question for you this morning is, how do you know that you will actually have mercy at the judgment throne of the man? Remember, as Jacob was reluctantly releasing his brothers to go back down to Egypt a second time, his parting and final words were, May the Lord God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. That was his final hope. That there is no reason... There is no power we have to resist him. He has all the military. He has all the food. We can't even stay away from him. We have, to, we have to fall into him. Hopefully he'll give us grain. And hopefully he won't lock us up in prison like he did with your other brother Simeon. So all we can say is, may the Lord God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And that is the gospel. Any other thing is a false gospel. The gospel is, you must trust upon God and God alone for his mercy alone. There is no other leg to stand on. Now how can we anticipate that day to come with confidence and boldness? I'd like to throw out a Latin term. Usually at these points it's always good to bring in a Latin word. Uh, 
when you're thinking, well, how can I have assurance salvation? The point of the Latin word is not to be pretentious or try to sound smart, but I like saying it because it's saying you and I are not the first ones to consider this. There was an old Western church that used to speak Latin, and they've thought about a lot of this stuff. And so the term I hope that would serve you, you'd have boldness to stand before the throne of the man. It's a term that means the twofold grace of God. Duplex gratia Dei. Duplex, obviously, is when you have a house that two people live in it. Or two, maybe. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the house or the rent. Two, twofold grace, gratia Dei of God. The twofold grace of God. This is beautiful. As far as having confidence to stand before the man. That you understand that there is a twofold grace given to God. That is to say that we are in Christ, one, and that Christ is in us. Do you understand that? Tremendous confidence starts to build as you see that you can stand before this man. That he, Christ, is in you. And that you are in him. Twofold. So we wouldn't be super pretentious with all our Latin. Now it's time for a really uh, bizarre and uh, weird analogy. Think of this. This is my experience at least. If someone were to give me a gift, there's two ways that I could take care of a plant. A potting plant... Or a tree. I've actually had someone give me a tree as a gift before. And the tree is doing very well. Um, but I've also had people give me potting plants as a gift. And I've never seen them again. <laughs> and that explains the twofold grace of God. See, Christ in you and you in Christ. The potting plant is understanding that it's a gift. It's a gift. God's justification is a gift given to you. So both of them were gifts to me. I was given a tree once. I've been given a potting plant once. Well, the tree, I didn't pay for it. It was given to me. 100% free, pure gift. But the thing about the tree is that the tree went into the ground and the ground went into the tree. And I saw it. And I planted it. And what happened was, it was outside and it rained. And the soil was filled with water and nutrients. And the roots of that tree took in all of the nutrients and the tree continued to grow and produce fruit. It was given to me as grace. And in some ways it actually contained graciously. Is that I didn't even water the thing. I just looked at it. It was amazing. It was beautiful. It grew. The potting plants, of course, the potting plants, they come, they're delicate, they're fragile, temperatures, indoors, keep them next to a window, that's nice, for the first day. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that thing. Don't water it, you don't get it around light, and then within a month it's gone, it's withered, it's dried. No twofold. What we say is this, the twofold grace of God is 
That we are in Christ, justification, these two terms we use, justification, sanctification. Most likely you've heard these terms. Perhaps today, this morning, you have not. I hope to unfold them so you see this, that you understand what it means to stand before the man. Justification, we say, is God's free grace, which pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in Christ. See, you in Christ, that's your justification. Being in Christ, you are completely forgiven of all your sins. And not only that, there's a called a double imputation of that you are also given perfect righteousness. That you are righteous, that you are pure, that you are pleasing, that you are not just tolerable, but acceptable to the Lord off the throne. Justification. Sanctification, we say. It is a work of God's free grace in which he renews our whole man, our whole inner man, into the image of his son. That we might die and live in righteousness. Dying to sin, living in righteousness. Progressively, day by day, little by little. Those two things. See, that's the second. That is Christ in us. So, you are in Christ for righteousness, that in Christ, you are considered absolutely sinless, spotless, perfect, and also beautiful, glorious, honorable, uh, not just not sinning, but actually doing good, doing all the good that Jesus did, is you, in him, considered that way. God before uh, his throne considers you that way. Romans 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a due. But to the one who does not, does not work at all, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's it. Believing in Jesus, your faith is counted to you as righteousness. No working. It's, not, it's like someone gave me a tree. I didn't pay for it. I didn't work for it. It just came to me. I received it. By faith, you receive that righteousness of Christ. And it comes that he might justify the ungodly. Not the okay needing a little help. Not those who are a little bit moral. It is exactly at the point of our ungodliness that we receive justification. If you don't understand that, you're always going to really actually be a little afraid of this throne. How could he judge me? What if I didn't do it all that well in this life? Double grace. That we and him are perfectly justified. Ah, oh, but it's not just that. He is filling you. He is in you. You see that in your life. This gives you assurance. This gives you strength, boldness to consider. No, no, no. It's not as though I'm just trying to placate my guilty conscience. It's not as though I'm just afraid of death and I've created some man-made religion in order to worship some idol and tell myself that God thinks I'm just. The reality is... That there is a reality to it now in this moment. 
And that not only would you be considered in Christ by faith, but by that same faith and that same grace, Christ will come inside of you and sanctify you, not just justify you, but sanctify you, make you holy with holy habits, holy behaviors, holy mannerisms, holy speech, holy thoughts, holy considerations, that you will become different. You will be transformed. You will put to death the old man and his sins and live in righteousness and moral fortitude. That will happen to you because Christ is in you. Philippians 2, 12, 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, you're in Christ, perfect righteousness, sinlessness, perfection. But Christ is in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He will work through you. He will make you like him. And when you see that, you realize that this was all given because of grace. It's not a potting plant. It's not something you water. You don't have to change the soil in the potting plant to refurbish new nutrients so the plant doesn't die. See, once you're in Christ, Christ is in you. You begin perfect trusting in Christ and that same power that raised Jesus from the dead and rose for your justification also exudes through you so that you produce fruit. That is, the grounds of the tree is justification, and the fruit of the tree is sanctification. That is what, how maybe a very wise man once said, he will know a tree by his fruits. A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Are you in Christ for good? Good fruit. Not in Christ? Bad fruit. Or another point, the wise man once said, I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser. Abide in me. Be rooted in me. I have life and nutrients in me that you will not have to worry. Am I being godly enough? Am I being holy enough? Am I watering my plant enough? Do I have any fruit in my life? It has to happen. This is the reformed theology of the reformed oak tree. Not the Catholic theology of the potting plant that dies and withers if you don't get your life together. It has to happen this way. Think of this man that they're afraid of. We know him as Joseph. They don't know him as Joseph. They just know him as the man. And this man is very mysterious to them. And he scares them. Because he is like a law to them. There's no gospel in this man. This man is rigid, exacting, and he is, and here's the thing in the story, the text this morning, is he's meddling. He's meddling. Joseph is meddling with his brothers. He's been doing it for chapters now. He's messing with them. And it's not as though it's just a a brother messing with brothers. There's a lot going on here. That it has to do all with the glory of the judgment seat of God. How do we know? Because the text clearly tells us. See, the man's throne is like the judgment throne of God. He meddles with their baggage that first time and they open it up and they find the money. What do they say? Oh, there's this guy messing with us. No, no, no. They say, they saw the money and they said, what is this that God has done to us? Joseph's meddling with them is like the judgment of God upon their conscience. Have you experienced that in your life when trials and torments come your way that your conscience flares up and you say, what is this? 
Lord, what did I do? Why do I deserve this? He is meddling, not only with their baggage, but with their brother, Benjamin. He says, bring me your youngest brother that I may verify your words to know if they're true. And when they were asked to bring down their little brother, they internalized. See, I'm not importing this into the text to make it some type of symbol for a sermon. They are importing in this their conscience. Where they said in Genesis 42, 21, In truth, after Benjamin was asked for, we are guilty concerning our brother. Now comes a reckoning for his blood. They know what they did to their youngest brother, Joseph. And now, when their youngest brother, Benjamin, who is the clearest replacement of Joseph by the same father and mother, is asked for, it's not just that Benjamin was asked for. It was God is calling us to account for what we did to Joseph. This is the judgment of God in our life. They see it that way. And this man's judgment upon them is impressive. It's oppressive. We know that he lined them up perfectly in order. From the oldest to the youngest. Before they ate. But they only know him as the man. How does this man know our birth order? We are in the presence of some divining power. Someone who knows us in our business. I'm uneased. I'm at nerves about this. And then he tests them by giving what? Of all the brothers, the very youngest, Benjamin, comes. And he gives Benjamin five times more food. When the whole point of Joseph's imprisonment and being sold to slavery was because he was a favored little brother. That he tests them with that same impulse upon their conscience. What will you do now when your youngest brother is given more? He tests them here. Now. The test comes to its end. And he does it again through Benjamin, the youngest brother. He goes and tells his steward then to fill all their bags with food as before. Give them back all their money as he did before. But that youngest brother, Benjamin, he's pushing. He's pushing on that button. He goes with Benjamin and puts that silver cup in his bag to test them one more time. To test them to see what is inside them. He puts that cup in the bag of Benjamin and the steward chases them down and says, Why did you repay good for evil? You see, this is not the cup that my master uses to practice divination. Oh, that phrase, that word is intentional. This whole story has been about who knows the secrets. Who knows the beginning from the end? All the dreams and the plans and the prophecies. Who has the ability to see it all? That is why the ancients were so involved in divination. They loved the idea of being able to get into some type of secret knowledge, to be able to crack the code, make better profits in the agriculture, do better in the stock market, know something a little bit more than the other nations. Divination is the key. That cup was used for divination. Hepatoscopy, the idea of using the cup for divining truths. This is the posture Joseph makes. When they come and they petition, they say, listen, what should we say? You've caught us. You've taken our younger brother. And Judah, Judah comes before Joseph and confesses and says, there is nothing to say. I have nothing to put before you. Please, please give us back Benjamin. Joseph says, what is this that you have done? Don't you know 
that a man like me can do divination? If you were to steal my cup for divination, could I not know that you would have stolen my cup for divination? This whole thing is a ruse. How does Joseph know the birth order? How does Joseph know the cup's there? Because he knows more than they know. But he knows that that is messing with them, as a good brother would do, to play upon their guilty conscience as he's tolerating them, knowing of what they have done to him. This is all a vexing, interrogating, pressing judgment of God upon their mind. Don't you know? And Judah says, what shall we say? My Lord, what shall we speak? God, see, he says, has found us out. We are in the judgment throne of God. And you are like Pharaoh, you're so wise and powerful. God has found us out, the guilt of your servants. The reason it's all about Benjamin is because he's pushing and pressing them to get them to confess about Joseph. He knows what they know. They don't know what he knows. We don't test God, you see. That's the reason we don't do divination. That's why Deuteronomy 18 says to make divination, necromancy, interpretation of omens, sorcery, charms, all these things the pagan world loves. Why would you test God? You can't test God. As Christians, we know the tables are turned, that this whole life is his test of us. It's all flowing to the judgment seat. It's all flowing to the final examination. Joseph knows everything about them. He's their brother. They don't even know his name. They don't know anything about him. Joseph is not testing them to learn about them or what they did to their missing brother. Because he knows more than anyone else. Joseph is testing them. See what's inside them. So that they would know what is inside them. You have to see how beautiful this is. It's going to tie in to the double grace of God. Joseph knows and he's pushing and he's pressing. Looking, he's pressing on that younger brother. Bring Benjamin down. I'll give him five portions. Oh, there's a silver cup. Looks like I have to keep Benjamin. It's all about Benjamin because he's trying to get them to feel the guilt of what they've done to their younger brother, Joseph. Who Benjamin is that little weakling brother left of the same lineage. He's looking, he's pressing, he's looking for a confession. And the best confession he gets, the pinnacle, the point where it gets most uncomfortable for everyone, Judah Stands to the occasion and says, Our father thinks that he was torn by wild animals. That's the closest he got. Taxi saying, We have killed our youngest brother. We've sold him to slavery. He doesn't confess. He confesses his father's confession of ignorance that maybe, well, remember, our father would be undone. His oldest. From that mother was killed by wild animals, he thinks. Therefore, we cannot go home without Benjamin. But you see what's happening here. And what leads, oh my gosh, if this is not the inspired word of God. I don't know 
what could possibly classify as. The climax of the whole Joseph story. Judah and Joseph. The man on the throne and the man below. Joseph high, Judah low. The interlock, the dialogue culminates to Joseph finally revealing his own identity. How did that happen? Judah's words. Judah's words. He is a different man. Judah says, if something should happen to him, he'll bring down my father's hairs, gray hairs to Sheol. I, he says to Joseph, I, Judah, I have become a pledge for my brother. If I do not bring him back, I bear the guilt. Now, therefore, let me remain as your servant for my brother. That's the moment that Joseph can't take it anymore. Everyone out, he weeps, he cries, it's loud, the whole building hears, and he says, I am Joseph. I am he. Why, in God's inspired word, would that be the moment of this whole saga in which Joseph would want to reveal himself as the one who is in the judgment throne? Because it climax to Judah saying the most beautiful thing in the whole gospel is that he would substitute himself for his brother. Do you see the duplex gratia day, The two-fold grace of God culminating in the first book of the ancient oracles of scripture to say this was God's plan. He will save the world this way. That there is a justification. That there is one on the throne. And that there is one who is changed. See? Judah, we find at the exact same time these two truths. Judah is in Joseph. And Joseph is in Judah. He says, I am Joseph. Immediately. That man who's been messing with us, meddling with us, pushing us and guilting us, he's my brother. I am in him. We are of the same flesh and blood, the same father. Do you see that? The first grace of justification is that the one who judges you is your brother, that you are in him. How could he not judge you graciously? You, he, you are the same flesh and blood. And at the same time, the first time in the whole narrative of Joseph, we find this that Joseph is in Judah. For the first time, Judah will say, he will speak a habit, a character, a holiness, a moral behavior that we've only found in Joseph, this whole story. Self-sacrificial love. Salvation 
through service. The servant who saves is not just Joseph anymore. Joseph got inside of Judah. Now Judah wants to say, let me be the slave of slaves. I will be your slave that I might save my brother Benjamin. The double grace. Perfectly forgiven as now your brother is on the throne and the rest of the story unfolds that Joseph will only bless their socks off after they've done everything wicked to him. But not only that so, but also that Joseph has got inside of Judah. That Judah is actually a different man. That Judah who gave his own ring and cord and staff as a pledge for a prostitute for sexual gratification has now given his own life as a pledge, a surety, a covenant promise for the love of self-sacrificial love to his brother. The whole thing is flipped. He has been transformed from the inside out and now soon to be, as we see on Christmas, forgiven. Forgiven. The duplex gotcha day. Perfectly justified and forgiven by your brother on the throne who counts none of your wicked deeds against him. Which all of our sins are against Christ. More personal than even what the brothers did to Judah. Go on. But then not that. That he gets inside of you and makes you holy as he is holy. He changes you. That even, even a Judah like you and I could become a Joseph. The double grace of God. This is how you can stand on the day of judgment. The double grace of Jesus. Dear Father God, we know that you've given us this bread and cup. We know, Lord, that you are the man who holds all the bread and who has that great cup of sweet wine. Lord, we ask that we would take it together, that you would unite us in this covenant, Lord, to the bond of peace, to the glory of your name. In Jesus' mighty name we pray as we stand. Amen.